Hello, Grace family. My name is Adam Spees. If I haven't had the privilege and pleasure of meeting you, I hope to in the future. Uh, recently, I have turned 40. And so uh, that puts me at, as a high school student, uh, around the late 90s. And uh, I've been thinking about what life looked like in the late 90s. Most likely, uh, I would have woken up to my radio alarm clock. If I was lucky, I would have heard NSYNC or Backstreet Boys. They were my favorite uh, boy bands at that time. I would have hit snooze a few times, made my way down to the kitchen area where my dad would have had the Akron Beacon Journal sports section ready for me. I would have uh, gone directly to the box score for the Cleveland Indians. I love numbers and I would memorize the batting average so I could talk with my friends. I was a little weird about that. I'd grab some Count Chocula cereal, uh, healthy options uh, were not readily available uh, or it wasn't talked about a whole lot back then. I'd head over, uh, walk to high school and uh, I'd be there in the cafeteria before the bell would ring and you would look out and you'd see others, uh, they may have had a book because laptop computers were not common. Uh, smartphones hadn't been invented yet. Uh, occasionally some may have a cell phone, but most of the time there's conversations. The bell would ring, we'd go to our class, and uh, the mode of communication was passing notes back then. I actually learned in high school to type on a typewriter. There were computers, but uh, they were expensive. It wasn't readily available. I didn't learn on my own as an elementary school student. Uh, students often were there in the building all day. They weren't taking college credit while in high school or that wasn't very common. I remember uh, at the end of the day when uh, school would be over, uh, I'd be excited to make my way uh, home to our dining room area. That was where we had our first computer. I'd hop on AOL Instant Messenger. Honestly, it took five minutes of this buzzing noise because it was connecting over the phone line. I'd get kicked off at times or a phone, would, a phone call would come in. My parents may need to use the phone. And I would uh, instant message with friends over AOL. In those days, you memorize phone numbers. Uh, you would utilize a phone book. We always waited for uh, that special time where we would sit down uh, to watch television together. Thank goodness it's Friday. TGIF, right? Where maybe there was a new episode of Boy Meets World or Family Matters on, and we'd enjoy some Little Caesars pizza with some crazy bread. Right, in the 20 plus years, primarily the introduction of the internet and uh, the readily available use of it has drastically changed life for you and I. I know some of you that are watching may not have been born then, but life day to day looks a lot different. For many of us, there's no need to wake up uh, to paper delivery. We have news instantly on our phone. There's no need to have cookbooks. We cook with a computer by our side. 
Uh, we watch television shows whenever and wherever we want. There's no need to have a particular time to watch a show. Uh, we often are our own doctors. Whenever we encounter an illness, we're researching it ourselves, good and bad of doing that. Uh, we rarely wait in line at banks. We make deposits ourselves with our phone. Life day to day is a lot different. We make purchases with one click. We have experienced and gone through a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift is a change in way of thinking, a change of our normal way of life, the way that you and I process and think through events. This idea of paradigm shift was coined by uh, Thomas Kuhn in 1962. He was the one who defined and authorized and fathered this idea of a, a paradigm shift. It was initially used for science, but uh, began to apply to other events, whether changes in government or uh, changes that we encounter just through everyday social economic life. There's been many paradigm shifts throughout history. At one point, people thought the earth was the center of the universe. The printing press in the mid-1400s brought a wave that led to the scientific revolution where people would have access to literature and books and, from a church history standpoint, to the scriptures. Certain pandemics in 1918, uh, you think of the Great Depression and maybe some grandparents or great-grandparents that live through that time of how their life looked very different. World wars. There are certain monumental events that bring a paradigm shift, a change in the way that you and I process life and our reactions and expectations to those events. We find ourselves journeying through the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we are looking at the birth of the early church the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And what we see is that the church is wrestling through a paradigm shift. This is what we have said this community, this kingdom community is. The church is a community of people called out by God who follow Jesus as king and are filled with his Holy Spirit. Many of these early Christians came from Judaism. They were trying to live a life of Jesus without the New Testament written down through oral tradition. They were processing the arrival of the Holy Spirit as the marker of God's people. There were tons of changes that they were processing. Today, I'm going to journey through uh, quite a few chapters in the book of Acts. I would encourage you on your own, read through Acts chapter 9 through 15, and I'm going to walk us through some paradigm shifts of individual characters that we see in these stories, but also as the church as a whole. The first one that I want to introduce you to that you may know is a guy by the name of Peter. Peter was a Galilean fisherman who had a brother, Andrew, 
that they were probably aware of John the Baptist and his ministry in preparing the way for Jesus. But Andrew meets Jesus the Messiah. He grabs Peter and says, you need to come with me. Meet the Messiah. About uh, a few days, a week or so later, they're out fishing with no luck. And uh, Jesus comes to the shore of Galilee. He encourages them to throw their nets back in, and they have a whale of amount of fish that come. I love how this scene is depicted in uh, a TV series uh, called The Chosen. You can uh, watch it, and you and for me, just to um, watch the character of Peter uh, throughout the series is so powerful to recognize what life may have looked like in those days. But Peter leaves his nets, accepts the invitation from Jesus to follow him. Now, it was an odd invitation because mostly young men would work to uh, follow a rabbi or seek permission, but Jesus offered that invitation to them. He was always countercultural. And so they followed Jesus, Peter and his brother Andrew, for three years. They watched him have compassion on those who were sick, those who were hurting. They watched him heal others. They watched him uh, teach in parables. And Peter came to recognize that Jesus was the fulfillment that he had waited for for all those years, that he was God with skin on. Peter denied Jesus right before his death. But as Jesus died and would raise again, he reinstated Peter. He told them to feed his sheep, that he would become one of the leaders of the early church. And so 50 days after Jesus' death at Pentecost, Peter is preaching a message to 3,000 people. And the Holy Spirit descends and arrives on these people. This is where we started our conversation in the book of Acts. And we begin to see Peter processing what the arrival in the early church is looking like. We see him recognize and confess that Jesus is the one true God. We see him being persecuted. We see miracles happening through him. And we see him wrestling with what God is calling to, calling him and his church to. There's a significant event that we read in the section that we are traveling through, and it's with a guy named Cornelius. Cornelius is a Gentile, a foreigner. He happens to be a centurion in the Italian regiment which means he has significant responsibility, probably over 100 plus people. And Cornelius uh, is God-fearing. He recognizes the God of the Jews. And so he's very devout, but he doesn't have a relationship or recognition of Jesus as the Messiah. And so God appears to Cornelius in a vision. And in this vision, he's supposed to go and get Peter, who's in Joppa. And he does just that. At the same time, Peter is lounging on his roof. It's the afternoon. We see this in Acts chapter 10, verse 9. It says, About noon the following day, 
His men were on the journey, Cornelius's men, and they were approaching the city. Peter was up on the roof praying. He was hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Three times he sees all kinds of animals with this permission to eat. And, and Peter's recognizing like this, this isn't right. This isn't kosher. They would have had dietary regulations and restrictions. Peter was a good Jew. And he's wrestling with this permission that God seems to be giving to enjoy this food. Because for Peter, as he looked back at the law, he didn't understand at the time the classifications that Jesus was coming and he fulfilled certain aspects of the law, right? That there are these ceremonial laws, these customs of the nation. That's that Hebrew word for these ceremonial laws, that they would celebrate the Passover or dietary restrictions, even clothing restrictions. And these had been fulfilled in Christ's work. There were also civil laws. The law served as the constitution for their nation, that they would have punishments, that if you killed another's ox, you would receive this type of punishment, that there were civil laws that no longer applied, that the kingdom community was larger than the nation of Israel. There were also moral laws, that God's character never changes, that there are uh, a way in which you and I are expected to live in response to what he has done. That these moral laws are reveal his character in a way that we should live in holiness, in response to what he has done. That when Jesus came, he summarized those laws. He said to love God, his ver- our vertical relationship, and love others, which is a a summary of the Ten Commandments, that there's principles in the Old Testament that we can apply because God's character never changes. So for Peter, this classification wasn't yet discerned or understood. And so he's wrestling with this process of the freedom he experiences in Christ. So he's there with these men and he goes with them. Now, he's still processing this dream that he has, this uh, vision, and he makes his way toward Cornelius. I imagine it was probably a a very awkward initial greeting, right? Cornelius is uh, being sent to him, and Peter doesn't know why he's there. And so Cornelius just says, hey, I had a vision. You're supposed to come tell me. And so Peter begins to share his life and begins to share about Jesus, At some point, the Holy Spirit descends on Cornelius and possibly some of his family members. And Peter has a paradigm shift. He has a monumental moment related to this lesson that God was teaching them through this experience. That God was equally for the Gentiles as he was the Jews. We see in Acts 10, his kind of response that's recorded. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. He knows that they were his chosen people, but God doesn't play favorites, but accepts from every nation 
the one who fears God, fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to his people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Now this had been God's desire for all time that he would bless the nation of Israel so they would be a blessing to others. We see Gentiles grafted in, but in his understanding and culture and practice, Peter chose to separate from the Gentiles and now freedom in Christ to take this message of good news to the Gentiles. This was a paradigm shift moment for Peter. There's a second guy that we see all throughout the book of Acts. It's a guy by the name of Paul. Paul happens to be his Latin or his Greek name. He was born Saul. He, was, he grew up in a Hebrew family. He just didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived relatively far away in Tarsus, but his family were very devout. They strictly adhered to the law of Moses. So Paul went away to boarding school probably as an early uh, teenager, and was sent to Jerusalem to study under um, a very uh, prominent mentor, Rabbi Gamaliel. And under Gamaliel, he uh, would have learned the prophets. He would have memorized a lot of Old Testament. Seems that Paul was very educated. He went on to be a lawyer most think that he would have served in the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish, the Jewish ruling council, the Supreme Court made up of 71 men who would determine the life and customs. Paul was extremely zealous for the Jewish faith. We see that Peter and Paul may have interacted uh, in Acts chapter 5, and you see Paul's zeal grow. He writes a letter to the high priest asking if he could begin to capture and imprison those who are following the way. On his road to Damascus to persecute Christians, he meets Jesus himself. He hears this lightning bolt come. We see in Acts chapter 9, it says, Suddenly a light from heaven flashed around and he heard a voice fell to the ground, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, he asked. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. We see that Paul has a paradigm shift in a moment. On his way to Damascus, he's blinded for three days. He's processing this event of having a revelation from Jesus himself. Paul begins to preach this message, but he's receiving death threats. So it's not very uh, wise for him to continue. He eventually makes his way to Jerusalem. There's death threats there. So the early church, they send him back to Tarsus. We don't hear of Paul for a while, but a guy by the name of Barnabas has been commissioned to go to Syria, uh, Antioch, there in Syria. And he decides hey, I think it'd be beneficial. Let me grab Paul to go there. And so Paul and Barnabas begin teaching at this church in Antioch. And this is a very significant church in the early history of the church. This is where uh, people that followed the way were first called Christians. 
This was a church of both Jew but predominantly Gentiles. Many had escaped persecution and headed to Syria. This was also a church that was very generous. There had been a famine, and so they raised money and sent it to Jerusalem. This church sent the first missionaries, Paul and Barnabas, among others, to the Gentile world. And so we see a very thriving church in Antioch. But news about this has spread. Years have taken place, a decade plus, and these same questions that Peter and Paul were wrestling with is now corporately being wrestled with as a church. And we see in Acts chapter 15 a significant moment in the church. It says, Certain people came down from Judea, Jerusalem area, to Antioch. Judea was actually south of Antioch, but it was at a heighted elevation. And so they traveled the 300 miles or so to Antioch. And they were teaching the believers there who had embraced the gospel that they must also become Jewish, that they must be circumcised, that they must follow the law of Moses. And so this brought into sharp dispute with Paul and Barnabas because any distortion of the gospel was a false gospel. They knew for clarity around God's message was worth fighting for. And so the church there in Antioch decided that it was worth to send Paul and Barnabas probably on a two-week-plus journey down to Jerusalem to handle this conversation. Because these Judaizers, people were on an inspection tour. They were going around following the message of good news that was given to the Gentiles with this message that they must strictly adhere to the law of Moses. That there was that they were stirring up trouble in conflict with uh, these law-observing Jews and the law-ignoring Gentiles. And so there's a moment where there's going to be a council meeting. So Paul and Barnabas, they travel down south. They leave Antioch and they make their way to the Jerusalem council. All the people are there, the early church leadership. And we pick up in verse five, it says, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, they stood up and they basically said what these Judaizers had said. They must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, probably much deliberation, we see Peter get up and he makes a statement. He says, brothers, you know, you've heard me share for many times a while ago that God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God knows the heart, and he showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit, which was the marker of those who were truly God's, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try and test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that None of us have been able to fulfill this law of Moses that we have not been able to live up to. No, 
We believe it is by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved, just as they are. Peter was abundantly clear. He said, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That there is no other way to where one can be made right with God and receive the gift of Holy Spirit. It's through what God has done on our behalf. And once we believe and receive that through the finished work of Christ. Now, they, much like us, may have been wrestling with, well, what's the purpose of the law? How did God work in the Old Testament, in this Old Covenant? What translation or interpretation should we have today? Well, they didn't have this written down yet, but they would have remembered the words of Jesus. I have come not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law. You would have seen Paul wrestle and share this in some of his writings. It says, well, what's the purpose of the law, right? Was the law bad? Was it sinful? Absolutely not. But rather, it served to point out sin. We wouldn't have known what sin was except for the law. That the law serves for you and I just as it did for them, to point out sin in a need for a savior. The law was never the way that one was made right with God. It revealed our sinfulness, the wickedness in our own heart, these requirements that we were never able to live up to, that we had all fallen short. Because what is significant to understand about God's character and his reconciliation with humanity is that it has been the same from the beginning. That justification, being made right with God, it's the opposite of condemnation, has always been through faith. Never a presentation of performance. There's never been vindication by morality that I can work really hard and earn God's favor. It is faith in the work of Christ. They look forward to the Messiah through faith. They did these customary ceremonies to look forward to this Messiah, to one day they wouldn't have to do this again. We look back and know it's Jesus, that for all time, God has operated through faith and given his people the Holy Spirit as the marker of his salvation. Now, you may think that was a paradigm-shifting moment as it was for the early church, but it's very easy for us to fall in the same tendency. We even look through the idea of church history. There's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Martin Luther came on the scene in uh, kind of 15th, 16th century, right? And... Uh, a little church history, so they faced persecution early on as a church. But around 315 uh, AD, there was an emperor in Rome, Constantine, who uh, professed faith in Christ. And so this minority faith now becomes accepted and eventually becomes the recognized formal religion of the church, of the state. So we have the birth of the Roman Catholic Church, and 
for hundreds of years, the state and church were identical. And there was punishment for those who didn't belong or follow suit. And we see some of the doctrine of the church changed, uh, reformed in a way to be beneficial to the state and to be held in power. And so Martin Luther, when he comes on the scene, there had been factions all throughout church history, but most had been silenced from the Roman government that he posted these 95 theses in Wittenberg, uh, Germany, because of um, his awareness of what the Bible said related to salvation in contrast to the message that had been prevailing today. The primary message of that uh, Martin Luther decree is what ended up starting the Protestant Reformation, that this was incompatible with the Roman Catholic Church of the day, the five soles. Faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, Scripture alone, to God alone be the glory. Kind of sounds relatively familiar to Peter's claim in the work of Christ. We see this paradigm shift in moment often within the church to come back to the clarity of the gospel. Now, after Peter had spoken to the Jerusalem council, we see that Paul and Barnabas begin to share stories of their missionary journey. And it says the whole assembly became quiet, silent as they listen. I can imagine hearing God's work among the Gentiles over many years. Some of these stories had to be so fascinating, so inspiring. When they finished, James, who is the half-brother of Jesus, you think of any credential of Jesus as the Messiah, it would be his younger brother. For him to recognize that his brother was the long-awaited savior of the people of Israel, right? So James becomes a leader in the early church, and he speaks up and says, Brothers, listen to me. Simon, he uses Peter's Jewish name here, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name. And he says, hey, the words of our prophets, those when we look back in the Old Testament, they speak to this as well. And he quotes from Amos and he says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord even as the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. We see that James gives clarity and recognition that Jesus is ultimately the one that the scriptures pointed to that he is the long-awaited Messiah, that he was the one from the tribe of Judah, from the line of David, born in Bethlehem, born of a virgin, who performed miracles, who was smitten, that he died a death at the hand of criminals, that all these prophecies in the Old Testament, they are fulfilled in the finished work of Christ, that he died and rose again, that he is at work through his Holy Spirit in his church. And he says, 
our history points to this event when Jesus came. And he says, this is my judgment. He goes on and he says, after hearing all this, after conferring with the others, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Well, wouldn't that be a powerful statement for our church to adopt? That we would not make it difficult for others who are seeking to turn to God? That we wouldn't put any barriers or expectations in their way that our customs and traditions wouldn't inhibit, but yet that we would live with energy and enthusiasm to make Jesus makes sense. May we individually and corporately not make it difficult for others who are seeking God. And so he makes this judgment and he says, instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, from blood, for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and read in the synagogue. This may seem a little head-scratching, right? We just talk about salvation is through faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone. What is James talking about? He is giving a practical suggestion, not a requirement for salvation, but a requirement for fellowship. He is saying, hey, in many synagogues, this good news is being preached. And there are Jews and Gentiles worshiping together. Would you prefer one another? Would you lay down your rights for the sake of your brother? Three of these were ceremonial in nature. They may have had different convictions, but when you gather together, will you be sensitive to your brother? Because they have different convictions related to kosher laws and how they go about uh, doing life. But another is moral because sexual immorality was very accepted in the pagan culture. Often it was tied in pagan worship and so James gives them this expectation for fellowship that, hey, we should still honor and follow God, but remember these things. The people rejoiced when they heard this letter because they didn't have to become Jewish. But what the council had shared was to the Jews, be inclusive, except the Gentiles that they too have direct access to God through the work of Jesus. But to the Gentiles, be sensitive. The kingdom community that God was creating is a community of unity in a culture of division. You see, the council's uh, hope and desire was this church would be unified amidst all of the different convictions and ways of life, that throughout this paradigm-shifting moment that they would be sensitive and prefer one another. I think of how easy it is to live out of our own preferences. A few weeks ago, 
it was a Saturday morning and my kids were bickering and fighting with one another. And at breakfast, we had a conversation, right? And in that conversation, I shared about Jesus' heart that we would prefer and consider one another. It was cool later that day that um, I would see my kids. It wore off quickly, but they would say, I'm considering you, right? I'm preferring you. May we as a church have that same attitude. May we seek to care and be sensitive to others who have different convictions. We live in such a divisive time. There are strong opinions everywhere. Politically to how we should be navigating this pandemic. And it's easy to want to voice those opinions. And I think there's appropriate context to do so. But may we be aware to lay down our rights for the sake of our brothers and sisters. May we be unified about what is most important. In the midst of diversity, there can be unity. That God's desire for his church is not uniformity, but rather unity around the one message that he has given us. Would we choose to advance his mission at the cost of preference, at the cost of not preserving our own tradition? Would we say to leave down our rights for the sake of others? Would we prefer and consider one another so that we can be unified? I truly believe that others look at the church now. Whether or not we're unified will be a significant mark to them in an attractive uh, invitation to be a part of a community that's drastically different than what they see and experience. May we commit to unity around the essence of this gospel. May sharing and promoting and offering this message unify us in such a way that all of these other things are secondary. May we be a community of unity in a culture of division. May we seek together, individually and corporately, to make Jesus make sense. May we never give up on fighting for the clarity of the gospel in a world of confusion. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for the early church. We thank you for um, their conviction and their courage to follow you and to follow your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would give us wisdom and discernment moving forward, that we would be unified around the gospel, that this gospel-centered us would lead us to care and prefer for one another. Lord, I thank you that you are in our midst. I pray that you would use us in a way to offer hope and reconciliation only found in you. In Jesus' name. Amen.